One of the things we learned from the failure of that first tranche of Silicon Valley disruptors is the enduring power of university, which they misread, because they saw it as essentially an educational offering. And it's so much more. It's about finding out who you are. It's about time with peers and colleagues. It's about identity. It has so many other layers that weren't easy to capture in a degree offered online. Hello and welcome to KPMG's Talking Tertiary podcast, where we reimagine tertiary education for a changing world. I'm Stephen Parker, KPMG's education sector leader in Australia. This is the final episode of season one, and we're certainly ending on a high note, as I'm delighted to have with me Professor Glyn Davis, AC. Glyn is one of Australia's leading higher education figures, known not only for his work in higher education, but in public policy and government more generally. For nearly 14 years, he was the Vice-Chancellor at the University of Melbourne, moving there from his position as Vice-Chancellor of Griffith University. He now has various roles, including as a Distinguished Professor at the ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy and CEO of the Paul Ramsey Foundation. In 2017, he published a monograph on the Australian idea of a university, a title that possibly derives from the classic lectures by Cardinal Newman called The Idea of a University in the 1850s. And recently, he helped to host a symposium with Peter Dawkins on the future of Australian universities to commemorate the 100th anniversary of Sir Zelman Cowan's birth. And I interviewed Peter Dawkins also in this first season of Talking Tertiary. I won't say any more about Glenn's accomplishments, or there won't actually be time for the interview. Glenn Davis, welcome to Talking Tertiary. Stephen, thank you very much. I'm blushing after that. <laughs> I don't know how much you've decompressed, as they say, since stepping down as a vice-chancellor, but I guess some time has elapsed to develop a perspective on it all. How do you think higher education changed over the period when you were a vice-chancellor, noting that you also served as chair of Universities Australia and chair of the Group of Eight? So it's a year to this week since I stepped down as a Vice-Chancellor, so I hope I'm slightly decompressed. (laughs) And you can't look back, as you must, with just a sense of gratitude for the opportunity. It's hard not to realise lots of other people could have done the job. You were lucky to be asked and to have the chance. And what a fabulous way to contribute. I mean, what an extraordinary opportunity to lead. So I'm deeply grateful to the people that I work with in my time. So I became a Vice-Chancellor first in 2002 and worked through till 2018 across two institutions, as you noted, and a time of very substantial change in the sector, though many of the trends were already evident. The comparative decline of government funding per student continued all through that period. So did the instability in ministerial leadership. I think I counted 11 ministers in my 17 years. So the average higher education minister lasts about 18 months. They arrive, announce they're doing a listening tour, make a couple of foolish early pronouncements and then walk those back, (laughs) then announce some form of review and then leave before the review reports, at which point the cycle starts again. And lived through that cycle so many times that I guess it's hard not to become a little jaded about the political process. We have seen a couple of big and bold moves during my time as a Vice-Chancellor. Brendan Nelson's interventions on research were very important. Uh, He put significant additional funding into the research agenda. He expanded the things that were funded. That was impressive and important. 
And Julia Gillard's decision to deregulate enrolments, you know, the demand-driven system was an extraordinarily important moment for the sector. Now, of course, abolished, but for the five years or so it flourished, it was on its way to transforming the sector. Mm. So over my time, they were the two really big policy moves. Well, a central theme of your monograph on the idea of the Australian university, to me, was that Australia's public universities are insufficiently differentiated and that that is not a good thing. Not everyone, I think, agrees with you, and some do see major differences between universities. I guess it might depend on how far back one is standing from the detail. But in global and maybe historical terms, do you think our sector is homogeneous or heterogeneous? So a piece of evidence I used in the book was the Carnegie classification. The Carnegie classification, which is developed for America, which is important to say, has about seven fundamentally different types of universities and about 35 options. And what was striking is when you apply that classification to Australia, every single Australian public university ends up in the same narrow band. We are all doctoral institutions that aspire to be comprehensive and are research-based. So in that sense, we are, according to the international classification, deeply homogeneous. We are as about as uniform as it's possible to be. That said, Carnegie, interestingly, if currently funding a trial to see whether they can go to a more nuanced international classification. And perhaps that will show up some differences, because we clearly have some. The dual sectors, for example, the combination of TAFE and university are almost unique in the world. They're they're very important institutions, and we only have a handful of them, but they do actually show a quite a different model on what's possible. But what we don't have much difference on is scale. Thinking about a a US system or even a British system where institutions can be less than 10,000 students up to the sort of large institutions we're used to, but in Australia, everything's large. Even the smallest institutions (laughs) are, are large by world standards, and our largest institutions are as big as any on the planet. And it's a bit surprising to think, why would you need universities of 80,000 students in this country? And the answer is because we have relatively few universities compared to population. Think about how many there are in Britain, 114, 120, something like that, a population roughly twice our size. Here we've got 41 institutions serving 26 million people. Presumably the funding mechanism also has something to do with this, that one needs scale in order to scoop a little bit off the top of each unit funding in order to help with research and growth? Absolutely. The applicability of the OECD funding figures are much disputed, as you know, because it's not clear you're comparing like with like. But if we take them at face value, then the public investment in universities in this country is at the lower end of the OECD range, which means every institution has to find its own additional income, which means universities, they go for students. So that's one of the reasons they're so big, but it's also one of the reasons they're so similar. If you're going for fee-paying international students, there's a range of degrees you must offer because that's what international students do. That has forced us toward a more uniform system. Well, let me move to international students. It's clearly an issue of the day about reliance on a small number of countries, perhaps only one country, and certainly some people are in a tizzy about this at the moment. I was reading this morning that because of the risk rating changing yesterday for India, Pakistan and Nepal, that might dampen the growth in India, which many are looking to, to diversify away from reliance on China. I guess the global political scene is hardly soothing on the nerves at the moment. How do you view it all? 
Well, in very similar ways. So China's you know, a fifth of the world's population. It's not surprising, therefore, that it's going to be so well represented in international student flows. I think to some extent you need to think about Chinese enrolments. A mining boom is a cynical way of putting it, but in a sense that idea that there's a particular moment in Chinese history why students look abroad, the Chinese university system already has now many world-class institutions. That wasn't as true when Chinese students began coming to Australia in the early 90s you might expect that it won't last forever. You might expect the number of Chinese students will taper and fall over time, and that would be perfectly consistent with the reasons why they come. And so hoping that Indian students might rise in numbers as Chinese taper is a perfectly rational way of behaving. People have invested a lot of money trying to develop new markets in South America, in Southeast Asia, and with modest success. It requires substantial resources for a family to send a student abroad. There aren't that many countries with a lot of families in that situation where there isn't adequate local provision or compelling alternatives in their own region. We don't attract a lot of students from Europe, degree students, because there are so many alternatives in Europe. We do get exchange students and they're wonderful to have. And the same logic, we don't get many students comparatively from North America and we're not likely to see that. And if you're in South America, the lure of going north is much stronger than the lure of crossing the Pacific to be with us. So it isn't like institutions don't understand that they're working off a limited range of markets and they don't understand the importance of diversity, but there are constraints. Picking up the issue about price, Australia is not a cheap place no. to come to if you add the tuition fees plus the cost of living. I remember a moment during my time when the Australian dollar was very strong and Australia was thought to be the most expensive country in the world to come to to study. Yes. So price point, I think, is a, is a big issue as well. Absolutely. And that clearly frames markets and it frames some of the flows that we see because it goes to where... <laughs> Where is there the wealth elsewhere that can fund students in volume to come to us? And that's going to be a narrow set of choices. Well, let's look ahead finally to the future, perhaps the long-term future. A season two of these podcasts is going to focus on the disruptors. And we're going to look at businesses and providers which want to do things differently and shake the system up. I know you've thought about the risk of disruption from when I took part in one of your senior management conferences a couple of years ago. How real is the threat, do you think, of something coming along that does to public universities what, say, Uber did to taxis or Airbnb did to hotels? Stephen, as you know, and as you reflected on in that time you spoke with the team at Melbourne, there's always people predicting that disruption is just around the corner. You've been able to buy books now for about 20 years that explain that the large public university is doomed, and yet they're all still there and broadly flourishing. So the much-predicted disruption has not happened, and the first wave of disruptors failed to do what they said they were going to do, which was disrupt the public university. I think it would be foolish to imagine, therefore, there's no threat and therefore that time has moved on. On the contrary, it's just going to take a while for the entrepreneurs who are looking for ways in to find the right way in. The first attempts didn't work as well as expected, so that the much-touted Udacity and other organisations in the end turned out to be more limited offerings than expected. But in time, they'll find ways and they'll segment the market. And I guess the risk for public universities is the one we just touched on, that if disruptors find ways of attracting those fee-paying students on whom public universities rely, then just by taking those students away, they don't have to take all of them, just taking those students away will cause major funding and other problems for the public sector. So you can see the way disruption might be more nuanced and yet 
quite devastating in its consequences. It's often said about major transformations that they always start slower than you expect and the results are always more comprehensive and just it takes longer than anyone anticipated. And one suspects we're in one of those moments. But one of the things we learned, I think, from the failure of that first tranche of Silicon Valley disruptors is the enduring power of university, which they misread, because they saw it as essentially an educational offering. And it's so much more. It's about finding out who you are. It's about time with peers and colleagues. It's about identity. It has so many other layers that weren't easy to capture in a degree offered online from an anonymous warehouse somewhere in Silicon Valley. But having learned that lesson, you can see the next tranche of innovation, Minerva, for yes, example, are yep. trying to create the sense of cohort and the sense of belonging that comes with a university degree. Yeah. And so you can see that shift. And they've announced that they think their method can now deliver a kind of Socratic small group feel to cohorts of 400 students at 5,000 US dollars a year. That would really be a disruptor if yeah. it's true. And interestingly, their target market is Ivy League. Yeah. Their target market is, you might think, those least likely to be interested in price and least likely to be disrupted, but hey. Well, Glenn Davis, you're involved in various pursuits at the moment, including playing music and leading the Paul Ramsey Foundation. I don't know how disorienting it is to be giving money away rather than asking for it. I'm not sure I could make the transition, but finally, tell us more about what you're doing currently and what the future might hold for you. So, as you say, I'm the CEO of the Paul Ramsey Foundation, which is a relatively new charity in Australia. It sees its mission very much as breaking the cycle of disadvantage, so it's spending a lot of time thinking about and funding work that seeks to do that. Very much research-based work, a lot of partnerships with universities and researchers to inform those policies and a real commitment to making sure that they're well grounded in the research, they're properly evaluated, and in a sense, this is high-quality social science at work. Uh, and this is important because the Ramsey Foundation is the largest quest in Australian history. It's a right? very substantial amount of money, and it needs to be well spent and it needs to make a big difference. So I'm finding that enormously interesting. It's intellectually stimulating, as well as just the enormous satisfaction of seeing what a difference people can make. The Ramsey Foundation is an intermediary body. That is, it funds others. It doesn't do the work directly. So the other joy of it is the partners, the 90 or so organisations that we've worked with in the last few years. We've spent about $200 million in the last two years to develop those partnerships and fund the work of others. And that's just beginning. So I'm finding that very satisfying. I've kept a little bit of academic work. I have, uh, as you noted, I'm a professor one day a week at the Crawford School at ANU, and I also have a visiting professorship at the Blavatnik School of Government at Oxford, so I've been spending time there as well. And I was there last month doing a little bit of teaching and doing a seminar, and that was enormous fun as you get to watch the Brits tackle Brexit. <laughs> and I did a seminar on the recent review of the Australian Public Service, which I've been part of, and a group of officials from Whitehall travelled up for the seminar, to my surprise. And when I asked them why, they said, well, we're really interested in, in how Australia creates new public service agencies. I said, well, why, why is that so interesting to you? And they said, well, people don't realise the British government is now having to create a whole range of new agencies to deal with world after Brexit in a way we haven't done for generations. There is no one in Britain who knows how to run a customs service or knows how to set tariffs or knows how to do our weights and measures or knows because that has all been done out of Brussels for the last 45 years. And so they're having to create whole new agencies to manage these quotidian but important areas of government. 
So having that conversation in the UK and seeing them try to think about how do they recreate all the bits of government they gave away has been a fascinating part of my 2019. I was about to say you're in the thick of it, but bearing in mind the TV series of that name, perhaps that's not the appropriate thing to say. Glenn Davis, thank you very much for coming in and talking tertiary with me. Stephen, thank you for the invitation. Well, that was my conversation with Glyn Davis. As I said at the start, this is the final episode in season one of Talking Tertiary. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the 15 episodes where we've discussed trends and challenges facing the Australian tertiary education sector. You can listen to the other episodes on our website, kpmg.com slash au slash talking tertiary or wherever you find your podcasts. We'll be back in the new year with season two, where we'll focus on the topic of disruption and bring you conversations with people who are driving innovation from within the traditional institutions and from outside. Thank you for listening, and I'll speak with you next year on Talking Tertiary.